This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Our guest today is Kathleen McCullough. She's an IT industry professional, a senior project manager, director in the fintech, that's financial technology sector. She's done corporate, government, and nonprofit, and she has a close working relationship with serendipity. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here. It is such a pleasure to get to speak with you. It's been so, it, we for the audience. We have had a few phone conversations over the years. We mostly keep track of each other on the internet, and uh, and so this is a real treat for us to get to carve some time out of our days and and have some conversation. Yes, so, yes, you're one of my one of my favorite people uh, to engage with. So it's it's always a pleasure to be able to talk to you about whatever the topic may be. So this one is one I'm really excited about digging into with you. Yay, me too. So we were talking before I hit the record button and I actually said, stop, stop. I, I want to hit record because I sent out a few questions to think about. And Kathleen, you were starting to talk about the way that we kind of unconsciously relate to power until somebody asks those questions. Do you want to continue with what yeah. you were saying? Yeah, sure. So I don't think that in our everyday lives that we introspect necessarily on topics around something as um, broad or multi-layered, multi-faceted as something as power. I think that we have sort of ideas that we take for granted that we don't necessarily introspect on until someone presents a question and says, you know, what are your thoughts about this particular topic? And so you send out these cursory, you know, sort of um, sort of get the brain firing off and thinking about power and what does that mean and how we engage with power. And I started just sort of, you know, jotting out some notes um, just to really ask myself, what do I believe? What, what belief systems do I have around this particular topic? And so that, that was really interesting for me because it's not something um, that I consciously bring into my everyday life. It's, it is something that um, is it rooted in almost everything that we do on a daily basis when you talk about power. Um, because as I started to dig into what do, what, what do I find interesting about it? And wh- one of the first things that came up for me was the imbalance of power. Um, and, and people, it seems that such a small group of people hold all the power um, up against a majority that feel that they have none. Right. And that was, that was the number one out of the gate thought that came around, you know, when thinking about power and what does it mean or things for me. And I, I really started to dig into it from that as a base point. So what did you notice when you started to think about it? (sighs) Um, So a couple of things that, I started to decide, is power real? And so many people are in positions of power, and sometimes those positions of power are unwarranted, particularly in the workplace. So you you have all these different places where power resides. It resides in our 
homes, it resides in our professions, it resides globally, it resides in our country, you know, politics, all of these different areas. And that looking at how do I harness power? How do I interact with what I believe to be personal power balanced against power outside of myself? And how do I approach it? How do I approach people that I've designated some power either over me in a hierarchical standard or a, where does the balance of power meet? And, and how do I have power or how do I not have power? And, and it can go from a very structured concept of power. You know, I believe this about any organizational power structure, or I'm having an invisible power struggle with somebody in my life in a workplace environment. And where does that come from? And I don't think of myself as a person that lacks power. I think that I've mostly through my life been what I would consider a powerful force. And I'm not everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly, I'm very, very forthright. I'm very opinionated, but there is a gentleness to power that I think people miss the mark when you're stuck in a power concept that says it's this rigid thing. It is, um, I have achieved the success as a CEO of my company or a vice president of my company. And, and so I really started to dig into this and I ended up finding um, myself asking these questions. And one of those questions around power specifically was, why do so many incompetent people end up in these de- almost like de facto powerful positions within organiza- organizations like the Peter Principle? And I started to really look at what what is that? There has to be a reason that I encounter this repeatedly over and over and over. And it's not about feeling like I'm the smartest person in the room, but I have been under people that hold positions of power where it's, it, to me, power is not pie, right? We hear that all the time, right? It's not pie. I believe that the universe, I believe that life is inherently abundant. And I think that the idea and concept of scarcity runs right up into um, ideas of power and how people don't introspect on the power that they do hold over, over people that are their colleagues or people that um, report to them. And I found this interesting Ted talk and I wish I could remember the gentleman's name um, because I just simply went to Google and I put in, why are there so many incompetent leaders? And what he said that we, we, we as a culture recognize a personality trait and automatically equate that with power. And one of those is narcissism, overconfidence, you know, and those same things that for whatever reason, culturally, we say, that's a good leader, that person has power, and we put them into positions of power. And and we have it culturally, so wrong about what power truly is, and how to be a person who effectively has ownership of power, and that the things that we elevate in this culture are when you are the least powerful things of all. Narcissism is not powerful. It is just boisterous. It is bluster and buffoonery 
And I, I don't want to get into any kind of political hot points, but you know, people look at overconfidence and say, that's a leadership trait. And what it really did was kind of made me take a step back. And there is a, an invisible wall that I run up against very frequently. And I just couldn't ever scale that wall. And for a long time, I thought this is, you know, this is rooted in gender. This is rooted in, you know, um, you know, some, some, something in a manual that I didn't get, like there, it's a boys club and I'm not allowed in. I've been in male dominated industries my entire career. And I started out as a United States Marine. So as a woman, you're sort of like, you're an anomaly. You are this, this, so I've seen this repeated over and over and over, regardless of environment. And I finally started digging in and asking larger questions. And those larger questions were, what is this? What is this thing that we're doing? And is it me? Is it them? Because I have had the fortune of working for and alongside phenomenal men that see skill and asset and value, and they elevate the women in their career lives and things like that. And so, so it's almost like I, I said, there's two camps of people. So anyway, so it just started un- unraveling and unpacking for me, all these thoughts and ideas that I had around power that I don't often articulate. And so I, I want to kind of pause there because I just spewed out a whole bunch of, of threads and things we can talk about and dissect. But it really energized my thought process in how do I want to move in the world? And how I want to move in the world is in balance. I N balance, in balance, two words, not imbalanced, in balance with a power that I often have that with it comes responsibility. When I walk into a room and I start to speak, people listen. And there's power in that without seeking. I'm not in there because it's a race. I'm in there as a human being. It's how I'm wired. It's how I move through the world. I'm a confident person. But I pay attention to the people whose voices are so valuable that get muted out by the attributes of quote unquote powerful people that are narcissistic, that don't introspect or have the emotional intelligence to acknowledge that power is within any person. It just may look different. And every person has such a valuable skill set that they bring in. Some of the people that have pissed me off the most are some of the most critical team members I've ever worked with because they enable me to stop from my own drunkenness on any power I may have to ask me those tough questions and to challenge me to say, did I get it right or did I get it wrong? And in this culture, we're not supposed to get it wrong. And even if we think we're wrong, we're supposed to bravado our way through it as if we weren't wrong in the first place. Does that make sense? It does. And it's true. Our culture really does expect us to pursue rightness and to pursue being right kind of above all else, especially in those more rigid power structure environments. So school and, or at least the school, when I went to school, um, which hopefully it's changing, but 
um, definitely school when I went to school and work environments where there's it's a rare manager, leader, supervisor who can look at the people they're working with and say, listen, we all make mistakes. It doesn't concern me that you make a mistake. It concerns me if you don't tell me or if you don't learn from it. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a, I, right. I'm thinking about, you know, it's interesting that you have a military background because before I left the corporate world to become a minister and then an entrepreneur, I had a supervisor who was reserve military. And he and I could not have had more diametrically opposed political beliefs if we had tried. But as a supervisor, <laughs> he was the best manager I had ever had. He was so good that when I got my first solo church and I was going to be managing people for the first time, I called him up like awesome. four years later. Awesome. Four years, four years later, I hunted him down and called him up and said, Jason, I need you to talk to me about the qualities of good management because he, like he had engendered a kind of loyalty in his team. We were an <laughs> internal support <laughs> IT team in a first dot-com boom, rapidly growing late-stage startup. Right, right. And even though there was no growth path for people who were in his team, really, like we could grow one team up and that was it. There was no other place to go. He engendered so much loyalty that we would stay late, do weekends, do nights, whatever needed to happen so that we could get our job done. And it wasn't because we loved each other. It was because he showed up for us. And so we showed up for him. And I think that is exactly, that's, that's, that's the right philosophy. And in my own teams, when I'm working with a group of people, they're people, they've got lives, life is messy. And I've recently started just doing this, assuming best intent and that, you know, I, I just think that over time and over years of being on both sides, you know, leading a team, I, I once had a, I, he's awesome. And I still, to this day, my, one of my favorite managers, like you remember these people because there is something that they do in elevating and challenging us. And we rise to the challenge of being supportive and wanting to see whatever it is, get across the line, be successful. And we do that under good leadership. And his name was Carl. And I went to him one time because I wasn't reporting to him anymore. And he said, you know what, Kat, this is what you need to remember. Everything that you learn from a bad leader is teaching you what you never, ever want to become or ever want to do to a group of people. And he was right, 100%. And I tried to take under even some of the most challenging, ineffectual leaders lessons that say, what is it that makes the people, not everybody likes their boss. Like the majority of people walking around on the earth absolutely can't stand their bosses. You just sort of sign up and you raise your hand and you say, I'm going to go sit in this like most hated person role, right? But disconnect happens because those leaders that get elevated, either they never knew it, they never knew to treat everyone as, as having value on their team. And in the military, in the Marine Corps, this is the thing that made a good leader is that would I follow that person into combat? And that was, it's a real, very clear line. Is this someone that I trust to follow into something as um, as it's life and death as that. 
And I've always used that as a measuring stick for leaders. Would I follow this leader into combat? And if the answer is yes, then whether that combat is working 20 extra hours a week or making sure that they are successful, there's huge payoffs for that. And companies consistently think, and this is one of the greatest myths ever created, is that, yes, it's true. Your most controllable expense is your people. And it's not rocket science to say, if you value the people that work for you, truly value, and I don't mean in the mission statement messaging, which everyone looks at and just goes, okay, when you put those principles into practice, and that practice has to be there to honor and value, no matter what role that is in that company or organization, that treatment shows up in the bottom line, full stop. And it's almost as if we become cogs in a wheel. And so much of our life is spent at work and with our workmates. And nobody wants to to go to work and work for an oppressive environment or a place where they, they don't feel heard. The most difficult challenges that I've ever had with any of my staff is managed simply by listening because myself, I know it's true. We never talk about it. Everybody wants to feel heard. And if you feel heard, that sometimes can be enough that you just want the acknowledgement that what we're doing is hard. What we're doing is uncomfortable. I feel like I'm not doing it right. When we allow ourselves the vulnerability and our staffs the vulnerability to just be the messy humans that we are that get it wrong sometimes, when we give that elasticity, we outperform over and over and over for the people that give us the the space to be ourselves. And and talking about vulnerability and leadership is counterintuitive to everything that books teach us about leadership conversations, about power, about power structures. We're not supposed to show a chink in the armor because, you know, and we're just not there yet as a culture, as a society, as a, in, in a lot of ways. It's still unsafe to show the chink in the armor, but in my experience, and certainly over the last eight to 10 years, what I'm finding is that I can do both. I can absolutely do both. I can, at that very senior level, have those conversations, be that spot on, very put together leader. And then behind the scenes, I am absolutely sleeves rolled up, valuing and seeing my teams as the people that they are. And I love, I because I want them to value me as much as I value them. And when I'm giving praise and kudos and things like that, it's not empty praise. And when I'm coaching and I'm working with someone that's struggling, that that's, that is all absolutely sincere and so heartfelt for me. It's a really, they called, I think my CEO the other day called me a servant leader. And I don't really know what that means other than I'm sincere and wanting the success, no matter what that looks like for every single person that is on a team for me, or I work in partnership with, but I won't ever walk into the C-suite and show that same thing. And to me, that's the, that's the tragedy of, of the power imbalance that we see today. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so so I'm listening to all of the things you've been saying, and what you're talking about in yourself is really a new kind of strength, right? A new perspective on strength. That strength doesn't have to be this rigid, firewalled kind of space. That it can that it can have openings. That it can have some what I think of as realness. I know mm-hmm. no matter how much power somebody has with me or over me or in my environment, I know that that person has bad days and stub toes and whatever. And so when I see somebody. <laughs> right pretending that they don't or acting like they don't or refusing to let me even notice that they do it feels mm-hmm. to me it feels to me like fear and so let's let's talk about the intersection between fear and incompetent leadership that you were talking about you know you were saying earlier that people get promoted who shouldn't be and it's because we have this other idea of what strength and leadership looks like and so when we start to mm-hmm. open up the possibilities what does strength and leadership look like strength and leadership can be intense and chaotic and vulnerable and also create the kind of bond that allows you to follow someone into battle i've i've never been in the military so i can't actually speak from that perspective but certainly allows me to feel like i would i would trust this person with my life mhm and how do we create those structures? But also, how does it? What is this relationship? Why does fearful leadership, or what does it look like when fearful leadership gets a hold of the power? Oh man, that is that's a really great question. And in my experience, the first thing that shows up when someone is full of fear, an organization is full of fear, is lying, right? Mm-hmm the truth telling goes away. Maybe I have a disadvantage or maybe I have an advantage when I look at how I move through my life as a result of, you know, you know, I've known each other for many years, you know, that I'm, you know, that I'm in recovery, you know, that I have a a 12 step program that I actively work. And so for me, I have to look at big, scary things like fear. I have to look at how that shows up in my life. And it's so funny because the second piece that showed up for me when I was reading the questions and sort of starting to introspect on this topic was power versus powerless. And that me me as a, as a person, as a, as a person that is in recovery from um, an addiction, I had to become powerless and I had to look at fears and I had to list those fears down on paper. Like I don't get the luxury of running away from that stuff. Right. I'm in it as messy and unforgiving as that light can be when I, when I shine it there, because it's a hundred forms of fear that drive me on any given day. I just know how it shows up. I know what it looks like. I know how to manage it. And I know how to default back to a really authentic space that says, um, this is, uh, this isn't even real. I can't tell you how many times I concoct a conversation in my head or I, I get, I get things built up that, uh, that haven't even happened and are like, oh, yeah. to <laughs> never happen. Right. Like having an and, with your partner while you're washing dishes, when your partner is nowhere to be found. Uh, Yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, it just, it just shows up, right? And so for me, I call it muscle memory, right? So if you start to deconstruct something in your life, because you have to look at it, because ultimately, your life depends on you getting that stuff down, 
for me, it dovetails into a couple of things that, you know, admitting that you don't always know what the right answer is and that taking no action is in fact action. And that my first thing, my first reaction for many, many years, rather than show you, I didn't know, I would exactly what you were talking about. I put up that front that there's nothing to see here. I haven't stubbed my toe. I never stubbed my toes um, because I didn't want anybody to see behind the curtain of how messy this really was. And in order for that illusion to stay there, I would lie about it. You know, you know what I mean? Like I would, um, and, and this also it's rooted in perfectionism perfectionism is a horrible disease, workaholism, all those things, all those isms that show up in our lives. I had to dial back a lot to begin to understand that actually I'm not that powerful at all. And I had to go outside of myself to, I had to find a power greater than myself. I mean, come on, you couldn't talk to anybody. Like I am the definition of walking narcissism, right? Like I am this thing. And I think probably for the most part, a lot of us are. And so when people would say things to me, like, they're not even thinking about you. And I've been like, what are you talking about? I've been thinking about them for the last 17 hours, right? You know, it was a right. conversation. Okay, so who's that, important? Is it them or is right? it you? And, because you're and, thinking about them. Yeah, right, exactly. And so when um, the intersection of, I know for myself when fear shows up, and I have done the work on not allowing those things to run my life. Fear of economic and fi- financial insecurity, big one. That's a big one for a lot of folks. Well, since you've known me, I mean, geez, you've seen me go from, <laughs> from sleeping in an office building and sleeping in cars to six figures. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have, I'm not probably strapped down by fear or my response to fear in the way that probably the majority of the population is. But I certainly see it in senior leaders that are afraid to, they always, that famous saying, you know, speak truth to power. And speaking truth to power can get you your job gone. That, and to me, for me, to, to be walking around as me, I don't, I don't really care. I'm like, great. I mean, no matter what happens, I can survive those things. I can manage those things, no matter what it is, because the story of my life is testament to that. So I'm like, I don't have that. It's because it's it's not beneficial. And I don't understand why we perpetuate that lying or hiding our mistakes is beneficial in any way. It doesn't benefit anyone. And it certainly sets up the person that you just lied to particularly in a corporate structure organization to not tell them the truth is the greatest disservice that you can do. And it's based in fear. And it's like, if you're not honest with them about the catastrophe that's happening behind the scenes, you're not, you think you're doing them a favor. You're not doing them any favors. And I say this to people that I are very close to me that I love very much. And I've always said this and I'm like, I can handle anything as long as I know the truth of what I'm trying to handle, I I can't work. If you don't give me the information, I can't work with it. And a lot of times, even in our personal relationships and those power dynamics where we think we're being loving and kind 
and we're sort of skirting around maybe the truth of what we should be addressing. So it's just, it's so layered when you start to dig into what is power and how does it show up in our lives and how do we react to it? Um, But in an organization, back to the question was, the first way that I see that it shows up 100% is, is lying. And it's almost exactly like the emperor is no, not wearing any clothes. That, that is how it shows up in organization. Organization. I can't even say the word now. <laughs> that is how it shows up. Thank so, you. I know the word. <laughs> so I'm going to pivot a little bit here because you said something really interesting kind of in passing, which is that you know, you know that you can survive anything. And then a few, a few sentences later, you said, I can handle anything if I know the truth of what I'm trying to handle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that this is true for sure about you, but I'm going to guess based on whatever ridiculous number of years we've known each other on the internet. <laughs> I think we need to really look at the durability and resilience of the marginalized. Because oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much power in saying, I know I can get up off the ground. This will happen and I will get up and I will keep moving forward. And when you know that you can afford to lose the job, because even if you don't know where your next dollar is coming from, you know, you'll, you'll make it somehow you'll figure Mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. But this idea that, you know, you can figure it out, that, you know, you'll be okay in the end, whether it's because, you know, your higher power has your back or because, you know, you're resourceful and scrappy or both, or because, you know, your higher power made you resourceful and scrappy for a reason. Um, whatever, whatever your source of that knowing is, I think if you don't ever in your early life have the opportunity to learn that about yourself, and I think it's true of pretty much mm. everybody, but if you don't ever yes. have the opportunity yes. to learn that and then practice it, right? It didn't, it wasn't right. a fluke. Yep. You weren't lucky. Yep. Yep. Right. You're, you're resourceful. That's how that happens. And so I'd like to hear a little bit about what you have to say about that. Oh my gosh, there's so, I mean, this is, again, this is one of those multi-layered things. And, and one of the first things is, you know, it's in, it's entitlement. And perhaps there is part of that that plays out in the, all the power structures of our lives, obviously. And when you hit on a topic so, oh, so near and dear to just me and, um, our minority populations or anybody that is on a socioeconomic spectrum by no fault of their own. That is just our own caste system that nobody wants to acknowledge exists in America. I just think that so much pressure, this whole bootstrap mentality is almost I mean, it's just loaded, it's, it's packed with shame, it's packed with the non-acknowledgement that there are absolutely places in durability that so many people who have been handed privileged positions have never had to walk through. If you look back on the, the housing crisis collapse back in 2007, 2008, these were people, whether they were credit card millionaires or paper millionaires or any of that you know, suddenly finding themselves on social systems that they rallied against, you know, this is just, they should go get a job and all of that, all of that stigma that goes along with, you know, whatever it takes 
for true real working families to survive, suddenly they find themselves on the receiving need uh, for those social systems, for those social safety nets. And I don't think we learned anything from that. I look at all of the things that continue to happen, the the non-acknowledgement of it is not easy. It is not easy. It is a is a life and a world lived that if you don't, if you're never there, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's not happening and it's not weaving its way through our everyday lives. So that was sort of the first thing that had come up was power, people who have it and people who don't. And we're talking about the 99%, the 1% that have all of the wealth and how does that play out? And, and, and I'm just going to say this because it gets me really fired up that our, what we look to, and I'm in a broad brush and probably piss people off. And I don't really care. What we value in this society is being driven by external corporate money. I mean, who I really do not care about the card. I could care less about the Kardashians. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I could care less. And I look at these sort of little latchkey social initiatives that they want to latch onto and be like, yay, today, this week on Instagram, I'm going to support climate change. And it becomes this, it's just, it's all bullshit. And I'm like, what does Jeff Bezos need all that money for? Why? Why? How much, how much is enough? How much is enough? And at what point does it become enough? And I'm like, use your platform, but use your platform consistently all the time. That's your messaging. I'm a privileged motherfucker. And I didn't get here because I'm a scrappy person who grew up on food stamps. I mean, you're talking in those instances, fractions of people that are able to rise above their circumstances because everything in our society is structured so that they don't. You know, our criminal justice system, our housing inequality, medical care, medical care, and so when you look at all of those things, and to me, I just sometimes look at power as this invisible hand of the same people recycling the same billions of dollars and dictating for the rest of the 99% how life is supposed to look. And this is how it's supposed to be. And I'm like, it's such, and I, I use the analogy of paying for gas at your gas pump. You, you get out of your car. It's why? I mean, and out of, and they're like, to, to stop fraud, to stop theft, to stop, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, how many people steal gas out of, out of the millions, hundreds of millions of people who buy gas? And I think that we walk through life with a constant message that the other people walking the same life with us are not to be trusted. Every messaging says that we're untrustworthy people whether it's going to the grocery store or paying for gas at the pump before you can pump it. Um, Those kinds of things, like the messaging, the messaging that's in media that says, you know, it's just so slanted um, away from the, where the, where the spotlight should be, which is on white privileged corporate companies and conglomerates. And it's like, my friend the other day said this to me and I couldn't, agree more. That multi-billion dollar companies put the onus on us, me, you, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, average Joe Schmo to recycle. Like, do you know what a pain in the ass it is for me to 
put bottles and know which days bottles and which days are paper and which da, 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 you know, and all the recycling rules and all those things. And I'm like, and when she said it, I said, you know, you're absolutely right. Somehow all the responsibility gets pushed down to the lowest common denominators that are not structurally set up for success. And it just enrages me because how do we continue to say the focus is on them, but we're not, there's no accountability there. It's like, oh, they're awesome. They are the equivalent of our royal family in the United States. And, and somehow they're elevated to some unachievable thing. And that becomes the thing to strive for. Absolutely doesn't make sense to me. That is that power imbalance structure imbalance. And I look at, at people that I worked with when I was doing um, volunteerism with AmeriCorps and the minority communities that I worked with. And the number one thing that was the most striking was a steadfast, unabiding, absolute, deeply rooted faith, unshakable faith. And I thought, man, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm missing, my focus has been forced to look somewhere else for so long. So that resilience is in so many ways, part of design of you shouldn't have to have those experiences. You, you should, we should all have enough to be cared for. Um, food insecurity and housing insecurity. What I can tell you is that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is real. When I was sleeping in an office building, I didn't have $2 to my name. I mean, you know, you saw me walk through that in my life. There is a sacrifice of our intellect when our most basic needs are not met. And I know that from my own walk through it, that I couldn't cognitively process the way that I had used had been so used to processing. I couldn't read. I mean, I was just trying to live by finding food and by being sheltered. And if those basic, most basic human rights are not met, we cognitively as a culture suffer. And no one should be expected to rise above those things because I'm here to tell you it's almost impossible. It's physiologically impossible under a depressed survival state for so long. And it just perpetuates, it just perpetuates. So that is my largest soapbox, I hope for this podcast. But I mean, it just really gets me, it, get, it gets me so fired up. To me, it's like so ass backwards. I just want to look at people and go, you know, there is power. The most powerful thing to me is humility. It's the most powerful motivator is humility. And some people perhaps don't ever receive the grace of what that is. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about, about the, the ways in which the very upper echelons of our society are both untouchable and what we're supposed to strive for. And I'm reminded of that article that was released a couple months ago about the IRS basically just saying, yeah, we don't have enough resources to sue rich people. So we're just or to audit rich people. So we're just going to audit poor people instead. Mm-hmm. It's that it's everywhere. 
And it's, it's that, but it's everywhere. Exactly. And then I, I, I'm thinking about the other thing that you said, you know, this sort of deep, unshakable faith and the idea that what happens if we recast power, right? We were talking about this other kind of power, this kind of power that's vulnerable, this kind of power that's real, this kind of power that's compassionate. What happens? What's the power? Where do we, where do we teach people to find power in, in being kind and real? Man, you know, it's that's tough, right? I mean, that's that's the stuff that just stops you in your tracks because it's like standing in front of mount, a mountain and saying, you know, how do I how do I move this? How do I even move the needle forward, even in the tiniest way? And so I'll be forty six and a uh, month after next, and I think that some of that idealism that I had as a child has worn off, you know, the longer you move through the world and you see kind of how it is and, and we make peace with that in whatever ways that we do. But that idealic idea that it would ever be different or could ever be different. And it feels like, it feels like it just hasn't ever been different. And I, not very long ago, I was looking like at how do you teach critical thinking skills? Hmm. And I think that there is a real push for in the anti-intellectualism that Mm -hmm. somehow being smart or being well-read or being cultured is um, devalued. And it's sad because I think over my lifetime, to me, it seems like we're falling asleep more and we're falling asleep deeper as a society instead of awakening. And that lulling has been in motion for a long time and it just continues and it continues through willful manipulation to, to, to make people not value those things, the cutting of education and, you don't have to be that old in growing up in this country to find out that your teacher probably has two jobs. We send messaging at the very start of what we value in this society. I value a basketball player who can pack in stadiums more than I value the human being that's teaching me how to read. And I don't know how to turn that tide. That's, that's the reality is that I don't know how to teach critical thought. I think that there people could benefit from, from service. Like in Israel, they make every, everybody has to serve in the military. And there's a lot to be said for that. Truly. I mean, I'll probably get shot for saying that, but, but there's a lot of things to learn in a really clear structure about good citizenship and those types of things. And, War is not the answer, but it's almost like, how do you compel people to a higher calling? How do you compel people to think about not just themselves? How, where is the compulsion if it doesn't exist within them? Can you even put that in there? Can it be replicated? Like I said, I feel like we're falling asleep as a, a culture and we continue to fall into a deeper sleep. I don't, I don't think we're reversing the trend.
I don't know how to do it. I wonder. I mean, obviously there are a number of, there's a, this country has a history of what they called voluntary societies that has fallen off. You know, it used to be that the Elks Club and the Masons and all those groups right. existed mm-hmm. at least in part to volunteer and serve their communities, to give back to their communities. And what happens um, when we look at the the economic trajectory is that as we move away from this very class stratified structure to a much more class mobile, both directions structure, right? Mm -hmm. Like in our generation, Mm -hmm. we've seen people go from middle class as kids to absolutely destitute as in some parts of their adulthood and other, other times of their adulthood, maybe they're doing well or doing okay at least. And so we, we watch people go up and down and, and we become increasingly insecure about our position. And so then we end up in that position of insecure leadership, right? With the fear. Yeah. And I, I wonder on the one hand, the reason I started this podcast is partially so that we could talk about and dig into and consider what our responsibility is as holders of power. When we think of ourselves as someone who holds power, what can we do with it? And in this case, I learned something profound about leadership by working under Jason. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I would have survived a stint in the military. I have some medical issues and I have some other issues that probably would have made that a really difficult proposition. I think maybe if we had a broader structure of mandatory service where you were either in civil service or you were in the military, that would be yeah. perhaps more humane. <laughs> um, but well, and, and my partner, my partner has worked for the government for a number of years now and, and she has revealed to me the many ways in which civil service, I think gets the short end of the stick. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I, I really feel strongly at this point that civil servants and military service should be, should be equally elevated that we should have like big campaigns to get people to kind of venerate um, civil service in the same way that a lot of people elevate military service because I love that because this country is stitched together by, by, by our civil servants. Yes. And yes. Yes. And, and there's Speaking nothing glamorous about civil servant. Right. And, <laughs> there's, and there's nothing glamorous about it, right? Like there's, at least in the military, you get like uniforms and parades occasionally. Like there's nothing, nothing at all to elevate a civil servant. You work for the government. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you, gosh, you bring up such a great point. And I, I want, and I want the audience to hear this because I will talk about sort of the struggle that I've had. I left federal service in uh, 2011 and I chose to go back. And so I went back and then I left because I got a great corporate job in a fortune 500 company. And it was a career trajectory that I wanted to do that. Unfortunately in my federal position, I just couldn't make that arc. I couldn't make that where I wanted to go. And it, it's a big deal to walk away from a federal career. I mean, it, it truly, truly is. It's not done lightly. You know, people think you're crazy. And, um, you know, but I had for years heard the the comments, uh, you know, all of the things that get said about our federal workforce. And what I did was 
so highly technical, I can't even begin to get into it. But if you were ever a, a passenger flying on an aircraft from the years 2001 to 2011, and then again, you probably flew on something that I either touched or knew about or had inspected. I mean, if I didn't do my job right, or, or the thousands of people like me behind the scenes, we weren't air traffic controllers, but behind the scenes, there's such a huge group of folks. And we're, we're what gets you from point A to point B safely. We're, we're it. And millions of, of passengers landed safely on the systems that I maintained and others like me maintained. And there's such great satisfaction in being called to service and being called to service to my country in these small ways. There's never that acknowledgement or whatever, but I had and carried within me such pride for what I did. And I was connected to my work in a connectedness to my fellow Americans in a way that I have never felt in corporate America. I had a job interview with the Naval Sea and Air Systems Command in Washington, D.C. I'm in this interview and I don't recommend anybody do this. And they asked me, what was it that had, you know, prompted me to come for this this interview. And, you know, I'm in Washington, DC, and it's the, it's the blood that beats through my veins. You know, my, my grandfather was a Marine Raider. My dad served in the, as an army officer. I was enlisted Marine Corps. You know, it's in my blood to serve my country in any capacity. And I, when they asked me why Washington, I cried. I did. I got I got this, you know, most people look at me and they're like, God, you're such a liberal. You're such a, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I look at what I call faux patriotism, the the largest flag waivers and the ones with the bumper stickers, you know, never served in the military. They just just haven't. In my general everyday observations, I just look at it and I kind of chuckle. But I am moved for my, my love for this country in a way that I think got they're placed there very, very young in me. And I cried and I didn't get the job. And it's probably because I cried, you know, but there, you know, if you could have, if you could have flown the American flag, as I was talking about my love of America, and why I loved being a federal, you know, in the federal workforce, and how much it meant to me. I mean, there is meaningful work, you wouldn't get your mail. I mean, you wouldn't get like the work of civil servants is everything that is the infrastructure and lifeblood that is America. And they get such a bad rap, but it is, I love it. And AmeriCorps was created under Bill Clinton. And it is one of the greatest things ever. If you are a young college kid, I mean, or, or you can't yet get to college, you're in high school, you want to make that transition. It puts you in your local communities and the work that AmeriCorps is, it's like the Peace Corps, only it's in the United States. And it's awesome. It's awesome. Like I did that work as a 40 year old. And I, I learned for the first time about communities that I never, ever would have intersected with on any other average day in my life. And I learned, and it was just as nourishing. That work was just as nourishing as the, as the work that I did for the FAA. And corporate America's never touched it, not, not once. And, and so I, me as a person, I'm morally conflicted about what do I do? And a friend of mine the other night when I was sort of lamenting and saying, you know, I'm having an existential crisis. And she said, you are the kind of person, Kat, that doesn't matter the dollar. 
you are a kind of person that has to have some some work that's meaningful and you don't really care if somebody without getting into what I what what she said making fun of my C store position now but she was right you know it's like I I have to be propelled to serving some type of higher good or I'm dissatisfied in a way that I just really can't articulate and I'm it's something that I'm still working through personally in my own life about what a, what does the next thing look like for me? But you're right about you, civil service. Didn't you start this interview telling me that you didn't know what it meant when someone said that you were a servant leader? Yeah, yeah, I did say that. But I, I think that to me, I think that's a new like corporate lingo thing. Like I don't know what that means to that. I don't know what it means it when actually, they say. It. It actually comes out of, I mean, I heard that phrase for the first time in seminary with people talking about Jesus. Oh, okay. 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 So it may have threaded its way from Christian scholarship (laughs) into corporate America. Things often do. But you just gave us a couple of minutes on what it means to be a servant leader about how the service piece Yes, of course, we have to make money because when in this culture, when we don't have enough money in our pockets and we're sleeping on the office floor and we're (laughs) scraping through dumpsters for food, we can't think we can't contribute who we are. But but that beyond the meeting the needs, you know, they say it's about $70,000 a year beyond that Mm $70,000 threshold. I would love to get the CEO of Gravity Payments who did that. I want to get him on this podcast because I want to talk to him about oh, using absolutely. his power for good. Yeah. But yeah. But what you're talking about is that the experience of serving, the experience of, of contributing to, to a greater good is what's really important. And the question that, that comes then from that is how do we encourage that in people? But I think the way that we encourage that is a combination of security. They did a really interesting study that showed that people became kind of more socialist in their ideology, more generous about what they thought public programs should do as they became less afraid for themselves, as they felt less mm. scarcity for themselves. And, yes, and that so, makes sense. And so I see what I see. And, and when you think about just why do you want to accumulate this much money? If you ask now, I have a, a fairly diverse economic spectrum of people in my life, but if you asked 500 of my Twitter people or 500 of my Facebook people, if somebody gave them you know, an unlimited pot of money, what would they do with it? Most of them are paying off loans and stashing money for future medical care. Mm. Mm-hmm. And when you take those things out of the equation, when you say, assume that your medical care is paid and assume that your debts are paid off or we're coming up to a jubilee year or whatever. Right. When you, when you eliminate past debt and medical costs, mm-hmm. then the things people, then people are like, oh, I don't need that much money. Oh, that's taken care of. Okay. I'm cool. Like I can probably right. find housing for this much or that much, unless they're in the Bay Area, in which case housing is another one of those big, heavy pressures on your head. And so that gets added to the list. But if you eliminate concerns about basic survival and medical care, suddenly people are like, oh, you mean just for my like everyday living expenses, like past food and 
a place to right. sleep and knowing that I won't be injured. Oh yeah, I could probably do with like, you know, a thousand, two thousand a month, like whatever. I don't need that much. So it goes back to the root of fear, right? It goes back to the rule of scarcity that you know, it, we're all bound up by it. Right. And I did so many experiments with, I, you know, I did my own scarcity experiments to see if that, that, that would work. And I don't know if that, I don't know if it was, you'd call it successful. I mean, I really probably shouldn't have given away my last 20 bucks to that guy. You know what I mean? But I got to that point where it was like 20 bucks, 20 bucks didn't make the difference to me. It just didn't, it wasn't, you know, people's lives change, can be changed on such a small pivot. And I think that's what people forget is that I just, uh, there's so much packed into this conversation. But by the way, I was sleeping on that office building because I was a volunteer for AmeriCorps, right? And that's that's the rub because that is meaningful work. I think we were given a stipend of, of $24,000. And for me to make that choice, for me, I consciously made that decision. I said, this is going to be really hard, you know, and I'm going to sleep in this office building. I mean, and I, it, you know, because that, that didn't go far at all. And there were people that I worked with that were living on half of that, half of them. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes that factor of where is the point? Where, where is the point? And if we eliminate um, the, the things that people are socking away from fear, it's a fear, it's a fear-based system. How do you, how do you, how do you put faith? And that was that thing. How do you replicate inside another person that it's going to be okay? And we don't have any examples of that. We don't have any examples of people. We don't have very many stepping out in walks of faith being cared for truly. And I don't mean these big showy mega million dollar, multi-million dollar jet planes and churches and whatever. I'm talking about the true stories of people that took those walks in faith and were provided or cared for. I wouldn't have made it through a couple of years there if it hadn't been for people watching me walk through that, that were showing up at my door with $500 in their hand. And I, Mm -hmm. I don't know how we do that on a larger scale. There's great nonprofits and great organizations that provide nets and systems and things like that. I just, it's so sticky. All of this is just such sticky stuff, right? I think there are two different poles because on the one hand, we're already doing it. Like everybody that I know in the Bay Area who has a housing resource in excess is giving it away, renting it for low cost, doing something you know, refusing to raise the rent anymore, um, some combination of that, putting up people on a short-term basis, like whatever they feel like they can do, but they're doing it. Mm -hmm. I know people on the East Coast doing the same thing. They're, you know, people who are housing insecure. And I know people who put, put up people who are housing insecure. And so I regularly make that connection. And it might be just a three months, it must, might be six months, it might be a month, it might be two weeks, but right. But whatever those are, like so, we know from research on, on specifically the housing issue, we know that people who don't have an address in a house, people who are houseless, are much more likely 
to have more trouble if they stay that way. That somebody who's been mm-hmm. houseless for mm-hmm. six months has an enormously steeper curve to get out of that than somebody who's been houseless for a week. Yes. People tend to lose their social networks. People tend to lose all of their other resources. And as you said, you know, a little bit of, of survival stress and your brain stops being able to process what it needs to process in order to get you out of there. Your brain stops giving blood to the cerebral cortex because the cerebral cortex is so not important. And <laughs> and when like literally when you're in panic, yep. the blood doesn't go to your cerebral cortex. That's what that happens. And and you can be in under so much stress for so long under those circumstances. So so you know, I think that we're looking at a world in which on the one hand the micro scale it's already happening. What we need to do is start to tell those stories because it creates social pressure. It changes the yes. story that we tell about ourselves as a society. When we tell yeah. a story that we're all out for ourselves and we're all individualistic and we all go home at night and shut the door and lock it and don't let anyone in, that's one story we can tell about ourselves and there are ways in which it's true. But we know that language and truth are both pliable. And the other thing that's also true is that is that kind-hearted people across the spectrum of wealth are sharing what they have so that other people don't have any harder a time than they're already having and to give other people a little bit of a leg up. And it's not, this is not like saviors of any kind. This is people helping people. This is people looking at someone and saying, I see a person and I want, I want this person like, you know, I have several friends who are like, I just don't let my friends and acquaintances, like my friends and my friends' friends, basically, have to sleep on the street. Like, that's not acceptable. <laughs> and right. I won't do yeah. it. And so if I know that there's someone that's vetted for safety, because again, fear mm-hmm. has its, you know, fear has its uses. It does. But someone who's vetted for safety needs a place to sleep. I may not have anything else to share, but I have this and I can share this. And so I'm going to share this. Yes. And I yes. personally, I rent one room right now, so I don't have that to share. I don't have, I, I don't have like, I can, I don't have a couch. <laughs> My room is 13 <laughs> feet by 15 feet. And, and so I don't, I'm, you know, and the rest of the house is sort of under my jurisdiction. My, my housemate is, is wonderful, but it's her space. And she's owned this house for for years. And one of the things she has done is taken a chance on renters like me who don't come in with the triple vetted, you know, three times the Mm -hmm. rent, paycheck, all that stuff that you need in this part of the world right now. But, you know, she took a chance on me when I arrived here three years ago, kind of by accident. And that was, that's her, that's part of her contribution. She does a lot of good things in the area. But you know, on that scale, these things are happening because people are just like, it's inhumane. There's a person. There's no reason why that person can't sleep on my couch. Right. That person is going to sleep on my couch. Like, it's just a couch. I have to maintain some boundaries so that I don't feel like I'm getting frayed around the edges in order to have this person on the couch. But it's a couch and it's a roof. (laughs) And they can have a couch and a roof. You know, when I first got here, I didn't, I hadn't yet secured a permanent address and I needed a driver's license in order to do some other piece of paperwork and I need my driver's mm-hmm. license to have a, a local address on it. Somebody lent me their address. Right. They said, you yes. can just po- you tell the post office you moved here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I stayed with them for a couple of days, but I wasn't staying with them as long as they had my address. They had my address because I was literally of no fixed address. Right. So in this one-on-one piece by piece, person by person way, 
those things are already happening. And also, I think the other end of the scale where we really need to be looking is I am much further over on the socialism scale than a lot of our our fellow um, <laughs> Americans. And I believe that systems that support people, you know, I think that every city should have housing first programs for people who need housing. I, I believe that we should have Medicare for all. Like, and nobody who knows me at all is going to be surprised to hear me say that. But, right. but I think that's because we lose so much when we don't take care of each other. Yes. Yes, we do. Whole, whole segments are lost. Um, whole identities, contributions, all of those things. Absolutely. Those get lost. And when, we don't. And we also lift up. lose our own identities. We lose our own identity. We lose our own dignity. When we mm-hmm. could help someone and we don't, we lose a piece of our humanity. So, okay, I'm going to kind of brings up a point, right? That there is a bubble of, of privilege, right? And there are, there's a whole segment of society existing in this, the sharing economy and and these thoughts and ideas and, and ensuring that um, their people in their connected community have the things that they need, right? Mm-hmm. That, that understand hardship or understand difficulty, understand those things, right? The barrier about what defines privilege is that they don't even know this thing exists. This, this, this is not their experience. Like they don't, I consider being a person in recovery as sort of this, I have access to an understanding of an underbelly of some pretty messy and ugly segments of our society. And mm-hmm. I don't ever forget that that that's there. And I don't ever forget the things that I've done in my own life to get me to where I am at, you know, where I am. I, mean, I, I was a kid that wasn't going to make it. I've been on my own since I was mm-hmm. 16 years old and living, you know, I did it. I, I, everything that I, nothing was ever given to me, not a thing after the age of 16, it was like there. So we're looking at this upper tier of this 1% of the population that's driving 99% of the decisions for 99% of the people. How do you get them to know that they're here? How do you get them to know like that accountability or that, that narrative shift that you were talking about? Like, how do we do that? How do we say as a collective, Hey, you know what? <laughs> I'm really sick of your shit. And how do we begin to make the things that are shamed in this culture that, that, that shouldn't be remotely shamed? How do we change that? How do we say, you know what? Um, we're doing it wrong. We got it backwards. You know, shame on you who has these hand over fist, multi-millions, multi-homes, multi-whatever. <laughs> that I'm that, pretty sure that's not how we start because that's probably not going to get their attention. <laughs> No, but I mean, like, how do, how do you say like this $1 million check? How do we make that the non thing? How do we make that the, that's not the, that's not the thing that we're focusing on. How do we rise up these things of the connectedness that night, that the majority of the people are walking around doing? Um, I just don't know. The more I the more I do this, you know, I, I follow both humans of Bombay and humans of New York. 
Yes. On Facebook. And I think they've hit on something. And I think there are more, I think we, we have to start telling the stories again. One of the things we've lost in, in our kind of move away from the arts and towards STEM. And I know that some people are now, you know, promoting steam and that's great, but it hasn't got nearly the traction that STEM does. Mm-hmm. And, and for people who don't know, STEM is an abbreviation that's science, technology, engineering, and math. And STEAM is science, technology, um, S-T-E, engineering, art, and, the, and math. So I think that we need to revive the artistic folk traditions that belong to us, including, and most importantly, storytelling. And I, I think we that. need to start telling the stories of the people that we know who are heroes as though they are heroes, as though we are bards. Mm-hmm. Because if that, you look you're, at 13th right. century Europe, if you look at 13th century Europe, people walking through the streets, stopping at an inn or a tavern and literally singing for their supper. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and what are they doing They're They're distributing news but they're distributing news as stories. And if they're not compelling, nobody will put money in their hat. So they have to be compelling. They have to be interesting. They have to drive home the emotional point that this little story might have. So I can say the facts of the matter are that, you know, I know this person who lives on the East coast and I know this person who was housing insecure and had these other circumstances surrounding that housing insecurity. And I put them, I I introduced them to each other and therefore the housing insecure person was able to stay indoors all winter. Right. That's not an interesting story the way I told it, but it's a very interesting story. And it makes a hero out of somebody who's a fairly unassuming kind of flies under the radar kind of person. And so if I, if I write that story as though I'm telling it to an in full of half drunk people, (laughs) Then we have a hero. Then we have a then we have a hero. This unassuming human from the East Coast in the living in the suburbs is suddenly a hero. Okay, so and you if know she can be that, a hero, everyone can be a hero. Well, you know that this that you that this played out on a large on a, on a large scale already, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna refer you back to Hurricane Katrina, right? And MoveOn.org's housing hurricane housing initiative project. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and there's a book on Amazon called It Takes a Nation, How Strangers Became Family in the Wake of Hurricane Katrina. Now, moveon.org. I mean, we were absolutely powerless. I mean, if, if you didn't feel helpless during that time, then whew, how the amount of suffering, you know, like go check in and get your, you know, find out exactly what the root of that is. But it came back from delivering fuel. I will just never forget. I will just never forget the cries and pleads for help because nobody could get through to 911 and they couldn't get to the American cross hotline was down. So they were calling in a radio station. So, you know, as I'm making this drive down to Baton Rouge three days after the storm and I'm just listening to these stories and uh, it was just awful. And moveon.org came out with this call out anybody that is willing and able to open their homes for any evacuee please fill out this form. So I did that. I mean, exactly precisely what you're talking about is that I didn't have loads of money, but what I had was I had a safe place. I had a room, I had a whatever. 
And they connected through this database, through this anonymous volunteerism system of connecting someone that had a house with somebody that needed one. And mm-hmm. it, it was awesome. It was awesome. I, I mean, f- for every awesome story that isn't being told, there's one that's getting blasted on everywhere that it was a bad experience. Like those things happen. That's the risk that we take. I had a therapist tell me one time, or, or maybe it was Brene Brown. I mean, I honestly don't remember, but it was that, that hurt is, is, is the, is the risk that we, we have for relationship, right? There's no guarantee that thing is always going to be safe. We can't insulate ourselves in those safety strikes. We can, it's impossible. It's, it's impossible. And we operate from this fraction percent and all behaviors stem from this fractional percent that it's going to go badly. And instead of the larger message, right? So you have to combat, I think, the same time, the messaging that says we've highlighted only the terrible bad things that happen. Instead, exactly what Honey is doing, right? Exactly that. It's humans of New York. We're, we're putting a human face, a human story to human experience that's not scary. Um, and I think that part is is part of the component that's necessary for this to happen. But MoveOn.org did it at such a large scale, and it was successful. And I, I feel like networks, I feel like those networks that are beneficial to benefit all, like if, a, if we can't get socialism or we can't get socialist, socialism ideas around, and you might know there are some churches that have co-ops, right, that you can buy into for your medical care expenses. Right? So if the structures that we've in, in, emboldened with power refuse to change, then it, it's incumbent upon us to stop believing them about our limitations. And by saying, okay, I need to build a better mousetrap because your mousetrap keeps, it just keeps doing the same thing over and over and there's no forward movement. So how do we collectively get buy-in for that? Does it take a tragedy like Hurricane Katrina to happen? It shouldn't. So how do we do those things? And you're on to something. How do we build those networks that aren't the new techie thing about Airbnb? Do you know how many people in America that are these offshore shell corporations that have bought up all the empty market real estate just to sit there to make oodles of money and leave those properties vacant? How do we combat those decisions and rewards for things that depress and stagnate progression? Well, again, we're facing that exact problem here in the Bay Area, and it's and and a lot of that is the only way to combat it is through legislation, and it's hard, and it takes time to get in place, and by the time you realize it's happening, it's often too late to reverse the tra- tide enough to have, make a difference. So instead, you have to do something else, and I think the something else you have to do is change the social mores, mm-hmm. because if it's not acceptable... Like in my circle of friends, it's not acceptable that if somebody is vetted for safety, that they're sleeping on the street mm-hmm. unless they choose to. Like if they if they have an offer and they say, no, I would rather be out here, that's different. <laughs> but I mean, well, no, I mean, everybody has to have agency. And yes. some people look at the offer and they're like, there are too many restrictions. It's not going to work for me, whatever. That's true. I mean, that's, that's true. a legitimate choice. Yes. It's absolutely a legitimate choice. But it's not acceptable for someone to go without an offer of a place to stay. And I think we, like, I have a cultural group that has that belief. 
And I think the thing that happens next is we tell the stories because when we tell the stories, then we change who we say we are. And we know, I mean, affirmations and, and a whole bunch of different psychological techniques and hypnosis, like we know things that were Western medicine is just beginning to understand, but that ancient cultures have understood for a long time. The stories we tell about ourselves are the stories about who we're becoming. Mm. And so it's time for us to start telling the stories. It's time for us to start telling the stories of, of who we already are, not who we have to become, but who we already are. When something goes right. I mean, we we're wired. I know our brains are constructed to re-narrate the bad stuff over and over again and let the good stuff go away. It's mm -hmm. Biochemical reality, but we don't have to do that. We can make a different choice and the different choice we can make is to narrate the good stuff. Yes. And I think that's how we change it. I, I, I think you actually might be onto something there because, um, you know, and just sitting here, I've got to, you know, and I'm, I'm realized we're getting um, out of time just sitting here. And I, I started to, it just reminded me, it just brings me back to this thing that I started when I came back from Ireland a couple months ago and I was behind a podium and I was, I was talking from that podium about, am I doing enough? Right. And just in our conversation right here. And the answer is no, I'm not. I, I introspected, you know, while we're in active dialogue and I thought I'm absolutely not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And here's why, because even beneath in the world that I have touched in my life, and I know that it exists and things like that, I'm not in that day to day anymore. And there are more destitute than where I've been there. There was further to go and I didn't go there. Mm -hmm. And I know there are people there. And I, I feel I'm, I'm a, I'm a Roman Catholic and you know this about me that I will never not be a Catholic. And I subscribe to the, the corporal works of mercy. And there's, I love that, that abiding moral compass. And um, I haven't been down to tent city to find out and to, to use my skill set that I have for creative solutioning to say, is there something I can do here that extends beyond a dollar or extends beyond a donation to a food bank. And those organizations are phenomenal and they're fantastic and whatnot. But have I gone enough to see if I can maybe be struck with a moment of inspiration enough to acknowledge that maybe I have something to contribute that looks different than what I believe it looks like today. So well done you, right? I'm sitting here going, I am not doing enough, right? I, I have always reached back to bring up those that can, you know, I, if you know me and you know my story, then I would never, I offer very often, often offer up my, my home and for people that need those things. And I've done it for decades. Um, what I have, I share, I try, but um, it's not enough. And I think if we ask ourselves individually that, uh, and we get very honest about the answer, then the fact that the, the fact of the matter is, is that I think there's room for improvement um, because the answer is likely no. And that's, that's honest. That's real honest. And that's where the power is, right? And recognizing yep. that yep. whatever resources you have are resources. I think one of the most disempowering things about being 
kind of ground down in the back left corner of the socioeconomic world is that you start to feel like you can't, you don't have anything to give. Mm -hmm. You have nothing that's valuable to anyone else that you need all this stuff, but that you don't have anything to contribute. And that's that moment where, uh, and I'm not saying that needing food and housing is not absolutely critical and life altering in ways that are difficult and obstructive, but the odds are that whoever you are, whatever you have, you have something that someone else will benefit from. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think you're right. Figuring out how to make that connection is, it can be very empowering. And then certainly when you're at the top, <laughs> figure out what you're not giving yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. You know, and I think we have to remove, we have to somehow counter, we have a voice that, that can counter shaming about being in a yes. position. And, and we can say to the folks that may be housing insecure, or food insecure, that they're okay. And it's okay. That there's no shame in that. There is none. There are things that sometimes aren't they really aren't our fault. I had no part to play in some sometimes being a victim of somebody bigger or something like that. You know, so there are life circumstances in which we pay laid no part in the tragedy or the difficulty that, that existed. And we have to be able to look at people as, as people and say, you're okay right? It is okay to need these things. And I hurt for you that you would ever not have them, you know, so that their responsibility. It's even more than that because it's not, I am this and you are that and you're okay. And I have somehow the authority to tell you that you're okay. It's right. We're just like each other. Like I have a different experience of life than you do, but there is nothing that should separate us and it's right. a cultural and societal failure that this that society that that you are not being taken care of that society is not taking care of you and as part of your uh, as part of society that i am somehow contributing to this imbalance because it's not right and it it shouldn't happen and so then i'm going to do something to correct this because it's wrong. It's yes. just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's it, right? That, I think that's it. That's exactly right. Yes. In, in the and same it, ways. That and if that I, means that I have to be uncomfortable, and if yes. that means that I have to be uncomfortable or less comfortable than I am now, that's probably okay. It's almost like it's not sufficient to be not a racist. You have to be anti-racism, right? Yeah. And we've, we've started those very difficult dialogues and saying, you know, how do I uphold the, the power structures and imbalances in this country um, on a, 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 a white supremacist? Everything is set up to uphold those power structures, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, I think we just kind of, at least I feel, through this conversation, getting to sort of the root, the same question that I ask myself in anti-racism conversations is I'm asking myself, how am I perpetuating and upholding the status quo 
right? And I've, I've kept it confined to that. I haven't expanded that to say, how am I upholding just a blanket across the board? It doesn't, it's unrelated to race. This is my fellow citizens, my fellow Americans. I'm contributing by not taking an active stance and saying, this is anti, you know, this, I have to take this a step further. I have to take this a step further mm-hmm. um, and challenge those people in those ways, in those difficult conversations, which we've already proven, we are starting to begin to be able to live through the discomfort of having them. We, we may have really gotten down to the root of some, something pretty profound here. <laughs> At least I feel like we did. Maybe you knew the whole time, right? Yeah. Like, I'll just lead Kat down well, this I mean, rabbit hole. <laughs> I, you know, I don't ever start these conversations thinking I know where they're going to end because I know that's a fool's errand. And what's marvelous is that even if I had the same set of questions for everybody, the conversation would go in a completely different direction. But because I'm comfortable being a little bit less structured, I, we get these beautiful, these beautiful, pla- we all end up in these beautiful places. And I think what's so important here is we have to have the conversations. I'm going to bring it back to storytelling. I think if we tell the stories and if we tell, if we believe that there's no shame in it, then we have to tell our own stories because more and more there's this facade of being okay. Oh, right. Yes. But Right. But then, yes, but, and that's sort of the same thing as the leader who doesn't want to show a chink in their armor, except we're all leaders. We're all power holders and we're all pretending that we have more money and that we have more <laughs> standing or prestige or whatever than we do. Like I say regularly in public that I rent one room in someone's house and that's not, you know, because I'm being cute. That's because that's what makes economic sense for me right now. I I think you're right. I think you're, uh, you're right. That is, that's how we change the reaction to it's, it's got to be okay. Like I just completely laid myself out open on this podcast. So people know lots of things about me. I know I slept in my car. This wasn't that long ago. You know, I was doing whatever was necessary, but the people that I worked with that I walked into at that fortune 500 company in a suit every morning, didn't know that I'd slept in my car behind the Seven Eleven that night. They didn't know. Right. You know, and if they and, had uh, known, it would have affected your authority in the system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can talk about those things now because I'm not under threat, right? Like, right. I've got to be, you know, okay with telling that and, and talking about that. Uh, And I think that you get viewed differently, but the people who I want to view me differently for telling that truth are the ones that are confronting those secret struggles. It's not the people that would pass a judgment on that. I don't, I don't care about those people today. Right. It, it says everything. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is there's power in story. I've always said that as well, that there is power in oral history and there's power in authentic storytelling. And not this hokey, like, God, I don't know. There's so many segments where I just read it. You can tell. <laughs> you you have, like, like HuffPost started this whole, is it HuffPost or CNN? Somebody started this, like, I'm a single parent who can't stop eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And here's what it means and why I don't know why they started go doing this, but these, these stories that we put on display in this culture of 
the performative, right? You can tell, at least I can tell, and you, you, you've got a pretty good picker too in that which is authentic and feels authentic and not performative. And we have such a performative culture that these are the things in the hollowed sacredness of humility, right? Back to humility about um, sharing the intimate personal details and saying, this is who I am and changing that um, perception of that person that may be locked up or bound up in those things that they're embarrassed about to say, it's me too, right? You're, you're me. And the more of us that give voice to that authentic storytelling, and I really, I think it's important to make the difference between authentic storytelling and performative storytelling and truth telling is that um, it gives permission and it, and it gives people permission to feel like they can be heard and everybody wants to be heard. I this is really good there. I think that's a you may- perfect place to stop. <laughs> you might have to break up this podcast into two people. I don't know if anybody can sit through an hour and a half of that, but You know, every one of these conversations has been an hour and a half and I'm, my plan right now is an hour and a half, hour and a quarter. Um, And my plan right now is just to release the blong and tell people, listen, these are long. You might need two commutes unless you're in the Bay Area, in which case it'll be half your commute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited. I am so, I was so excited when you announced this and and did a call out and um, I'm just, I know I, I want to know the other powerful conversations that you're having because I know that they are. I've seen the people that are that you already in, interviewed. I think there were 10 or, or so. And then the mm-hmm. other ones yeah. that are coming. And I'm just, I'm so excited. And I think that, I think the work that you've done uh, around uh, just everything that I've seen you start to build out in the last um, couple of years is just, just so critical and so vital. And I, I, really think that you, you are uniquely the person to bring these conversations forward in the way that you are and how they're showing up. And I, I just, I love, I love what you do. I have the deepest respect and regard for the work that you do. Um, I think you're an amazing um, facilitator of conversation and connector. And you've always been that in my own life, right? I've seen you repeatedly um, over and over. And so I'm so thrilled and excited to hear other guests that you have on. And I, I want to connect you with other people. I want, I want to draw people into this conversation. And so I'm going to certainly tap my friend. That's the VP over at the company I was talking to earlier and just say, Hey, I want you to just go on. And I want you to just discover through, through the dialogue and through the conversation, your own beliefs, your own challenges, maybe the things that you'll discover along the, along the conversation about power and about your own. I mean, I, I just, it's fantastic. I came out of this and I'm like, wow, that was awesome. <laughs> I come out of every single one of these interviews feeling like it was awesome and so grateful for the, for the breadth and depth of my network and, mm-hmm. and the ways in which I've been able to connect people to resources and people to people and the amount of trust that people put in me to lead our conversations into those kind of sensitive, kind of tender, kind of scary places. And I'm like, I'm here. We're just going to yeah. go do this. It's going to be okay. <laughs> and, and it always is. And it's always so much more than I could have imagined. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast and having this conversation with me. Absolutely. Um, if, if people wanted to, to get in touch with you, 
Is that mm-hmm. something you're open to? And if so, how should they do it? Absolutely. Um, believe it or not, LinkedIn is sort of my Facebook, right? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm reading articles all the time. It's just sort of where I'm at. And I think it's just my first initial and my last name on LinkedIn is how you find me. I, I don't think it's fully Kathleen McCullough. It might be shortened to Kathleen. I mean, a uh, cat. Let me, let me look this up real quick. And it's open so that anybody, um, whether we're connected or not, can contact me and reach out. And, and I'm pretty responsive. So, uh, no, you can find me. You should be able to find me as my full name, um, Kathleen McCullough on LinkedIn. Do you want to spell your last name for folks? Just Yeah, so. absolutely. It's M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H. Fabulous. So if people want to find you, they'll look for you on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, thank you so much for being here, being on this podcast. And um, you're very welcome. I look forward to seeing you around the internet. Yes. Yes. Thank you so very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com/patreon. For information about coaching and consulting or to book Lila for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.